Hi there. Welcome to the American Food Roots podcast. I'm Bonnie Wolf, and I'm here with Peter Ogburn. Hi, Peter. Hey, Bonnie. And we're here to talk about why we eat what we eat. And today we are going to start with one of Peter's favorites. <laughs> that would be the pig. The pig. <laughs> and yes, all things pig. Peter went this weekend to Cachon 555, which is in, I think, 10 cities across the country. And this week it was in Washington. And Peter went and spent, I don't know, four hours or so in a feeding frenzy. They warn you before you go that there's a lot of food. I mean, they, they are right up front about it. And they say there's going to be a lot of food. And the premise is they have five uh, local chefs and they give them each a breed of heritage pig. And they create dishes, and then they have usually five winemakers, and there's a lot of bourbon, and there's beer, and there's just a sea of drink and pig. Who was the designated driver? I brought my wife. <laughs> I brought my wife. <laughs> I mean, I that was go. so smart. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, uh, I brought her along to help. Um, but it was interesting the uh, to hear them talk about it at this at this event. Because uh, the founder was saying that this is all part of what he calls the good food movement. And it's not only food that's delicious and tasty, but it's also food that you can sort of feel good about, even though none of us felt particularly great when we left the event because we ate so much. And what does he mean by that, food you can feel good about? Food you can feel good about in the sense that these are heritage pigs. These are pigs that have been around, breeds of pig that have been around for a very long time. They've been to Harvard. Um, they've been very educated pigs. They've been raised by farmers who have been doing this for a long time. They know what they're doing. They're not factory farms. But, you know, like some of them, there they were some that were known because they have the thick uh, fur, right? Like these mangalitsa pigs, they're called. They're furry pigs. And then some of them are known for their high, pure fat content, right? Like they're just fattier than other pigs. Do they taste different? I will say that they do taste different in the sense that when you take a bite of, like, for example, there was one perfect uh, bite that was done by a chef in Washington, D.C. named Marjorie Meek Bradley from a restaurant called Ripple that was a pork croquette. And you take a bite of it, and it's just pure porky bite. And I don't know how else to describe it other than porky. It tastes like there's a lot of flavor there. So, Can you uh, taste the difference between... Among breeds, I mean, are there, does, did her pig taste different than somebody else's pig? Personally, no. I could not, only because I think of the preparation that was involved. I think that if you were to grill a pork chop from each of these breeds of pig, right, you could maybe make that argument. But it, I think it's a matter of how much fat was used because that's where all the flavor is. Let's talk about the offerings. So the winner was Eric Bruner Yang of Toki Underground, mm -hmm. and he, he was named... Prince, he got the Prince of Pork crown. Prince of Pork. He will now compete for the King of Pork crown at the Grand Cochon Contest, which is in June in Aspen. The way that they do it is uh, the crowd gets to vote, and then they also have a team of judges that vote, and they weigh it differently. I think that the the crowd's vote counts for 51% of the vote, and the judges count for 49%. You are exactly right, Peter. How about that? <laughs> How about that it for once? See, I was paying attention. 
<laughs> well, first of all, what kind of pig, what breed was his pig? So he had a large black pig. That's the breed, large black pig. That's a very, very creative name. Yeah. This pig is known for its taste, pasture foraging skills, and overall hardiness. They have short black hair, wide shoulders, and a long body. So that's the type of pig that won from Eric Bruner Yang. Um, some of the dishes he served. They were all Cambodian and Chinese, right? Yes. It was all very Asian inspired. There was a char shoe pork bun, which was delicious. So good. Uh, there Made was, with shoulder meat. Was it? Yeah. Oh, it was delicious. It was really delicious. Uh, there was a noodle soup with a, a very rich pork broth. But yeah, it was it, it, the food there was was all. He also made a pig's blood cake. What was your favorite thing that you ate? <sighs> That's a good question. Um, m- the maybe my favorite dish was this dish from a gentleman by the name of Dylan Fultonier, who uh, runs Rappahannock Restaurant, and he cooked with the mule foot. The mule foot, by the way, is known as a docile animal. Is that is that's the pig breed. That's the mule pig. foot. Yes, the mule foot pig is the breed that he used. He did a liver a liver pudding over grits with like a fried egg, a little fried quail egg on top. Oh, I read about that, and oh. one of the judges called it scrapple magic. <laughs> it, that's a good way to put it. Actually, it was genuinely delicious, I've, and it's one of those things that I don't know that I've ever had anything quite like it. I also um, saw that someone made a pasta with pork skin. Yes, from the red hen. I never, I didn't get a chance to try that. This is this is one of the things about an event like this is there are so many people and they're cranking out so many little dishes of food that you don't necessarily get a chance to try everything because you'll go up to the table and maybe they're running behind on one dish or catching up and you just sort of miss it. So I miss the pigskin noodles. But I do want to know if uh, you ate, you mentioned the chef from Ripple mm-hmm. who created a pig heart sausage served in a homemade pretzel roll. That was delicious. That was delicious. And my wife, who is not a huge fan of organ meat, said that was just one of her favorite bites, too. Did you have fun? I did. It's a very fun atmosphere. Uh, you you meet a lot of people, uh, chefs and butchers and artisans, because it's not just all about those five chefs. There are a lot of other people around who uh, make pickles and, and small wineries who show up to, to sort of talk about their products. And so it's a really cool event, and it's all about um, – raising awareness of some of these people that are doing elevated products, but it's not necessarily something new. It's sort of the old way that people did things. So it's a cool event. Well, we will have loads of photographs and video on AmericanFoodRoots.com this week. There will be photos of a lot of the food and a lot of the chefs. So we have that to look forward to. Excellent. Speaking of pig, well, pig sort of makes it easy to segue into this video that we have at AmericanFoodRoots.com on Texas brisket. We do two to three minute f- videos uh, every week, every other week on people's food memories. So we have a young woman from Texas who left Texas 10 years ago and moved to D.C., She said she was shocked, shocked about the ignorance (laughs) surrounding brisket. She said, I just thought it was such a common meal for people to have. 
But in Texas, as you probably know, because you come from the South and you're a big, strong boy and like those <laughs> those those kind of meals. That's true. That's true. In Texas, brisket is like a an eight to twelve pound slab of meat that's just swaddled in fat and smoked or slow cooked with pretty much nothing but salt and pepper, and then you can put a sauce on it if you want to. Well, there's a, there's a very interesting fight that happens in the South, right? Because I come from South Carolina. Oh, right. I come from South Carolina. I'll just give you a very quick regional map of barbecue here, just very, very quickly. South Carolina is a lot of shoulder that uses a mustard-based barbecue sauce. North Carolina is a whole hog. They barbecue the whole hog. And it's they go ve- whole hog. They go whole hog, and it's a very vinegary-based uh, uh, sauce. Alabama, they have barbecue chicken with white sauce, but they also do ribs. White sauce. Let's just stop there for one minute. White I mean, barbecue sauce. It's a mayonnaise-based sauce. Yep, white, white barbecue sauce. And then, the, and then there's Texas, which is a land unto itself. I mean, exactly. te- Texas yep. is not the South. No, it was Texas its is own Texas. Country. Texas right. is Texas. It's bigger than France. And so when I grew up, we only ate pork barbecue. There was no brisket in South Carolina. I, ne- I honestly, I tell you, I never, ever, ever had brisket when I was growing up in South Carolina. When I moved to Texas as a 23-year-old man is when I first encountered brisket. And was it a, a, wonder, a, a memorable encounter? It was a magical experience. It was a magical <laughs> like experience. magic scrapple. Exactly. Exactly. The, um, well, I lived in Texas for quite some time and was initiated into the brisket lifestyle. It's kind of a secret society, but <laughs> the this woman in our in our video says that they had it every Sunday for dinner with uh, black eyed peas and a salad, and she. Um, she said her mom visits her now and helps her throw brisket parties for her friends. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Because in D.C., which is kind of the east, but it's certainly not Texas, um, brisket is something that you buy untrimmed and you could turn it into corned beef and cabbage. You could, um, if you're Jewish, you have it stewed as uh, as brisket mm-hmm. and but this is this is a whole whole other thing. I do want to correct you on one thing okay. and that is you mentioned that you can serve it with sauce. Oh. Yeah. In Texas <laughs> In Texas you serve they all serve it with sauce. Well, I I I have seen grown men get Cry. visibly angry <laughs> at the idea of somebody putting sauce on their brisket because they're so proud of the smoke yeah. that they put on it. That to sully it with a sauce there is, is pure sacrilege. You, you're right. And actually, the guy who taught me how to make sauce was from Louisiana. He was on the border, but he was <laughs> he was from Louisiana. But every Texas uh, barbecue joint you go to has sauce. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of them some have of just hot sauce. A lot of them have wavered on it. But some of the old, old, old barbecue places so that have been around gonna forever. If we're going to go back to heritage brisket. <laughs> brisket. There's no, no sauce. sauce. Okay. There's no sauce. Now, so we've had pig and brisket. We're, it, we've been eating Can we light. talk about salads or something? Nope. You know this what is, we're going to talk about oh, now? Man. What? Brownies. Oh, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Why stop now? We, um, do you know the history of the brownie, Peter? No. Well. Actually, I, I, I hope you'll enlighten me. I'm going to. On AmericanFoodRoots.com, we have a little story about 
the invention of the brownie, which I had no idea. I thought Betty Crocker invented the brownie. I know she's not a real person, but it turns out that Chicago businessman Potter Palmer is responsible for the brownie. He married a woman named Bertha Honoré, who was a socialite, by the way, 23 years younger than he was. They were introduced by a mutual friend named Marshall Field. Um, Palmer's wedding gift to his bride was the Palmer House, which is now a very elegant hotel in Chicago, but it's where they lived. And she decorated it in a very, very minimalist style with gilded chandeliers and the largest collection of Impressionist art outside of France. (laughs) When the World's Fair came to Chicago in 1893... They asked Mrs. Palmer if she could provide a dessert for the women's building. Okay. She asked the chef at the Palmer House to make a ladies' dessert that would be easier to eat than a piece of pie, smaller than a slice of layer cake, and that could easily fit into the boxed lunches at the (laughs) fair. He came up with... Yes, the brownie. <laughs> now, I don't want to get into gender ro- politics or anything like that here. Oh, but, go ahead. But, like, when you think of these high society women of that day, I would think, like, a tea cookie or, like, a little Have lace. Have you seen those corsets? <laughs> you can hide a lot under there, huh? I I mean, that's I, exactly. I, I love it. I think it's great. Well, and you should go look at this story because there's a recipe for oh, this brownie. The original brownie. It has a lot of butter, a lot of chocolate. It looks pretty good. Then you go into the, are you the dry brownie with the frosting? Are you the gooey brownie? Who are you? Peter? I don't put, you don't put frosting on a brownie. That's called cake. I know. Isn't that wrong? That's called cake. Yeah, don't put a fro- don't put frosting on a brownie. Okay. I think we'll just, we'll leave it at that. But did you grow up eating brownies? I love brownies. My mother made uh, peanut butter brownies. Ooh. So what she would do is she'd lay down some of the batter and then do like a layer of peanut butter and then put more batter on top. So it just sort of bakes into the brownie. I didn't know this about your mother. <laughs> this is, there must My be My mother could cook. Apparently. Could cook. It is snowing in Washington, yep. as in much of the rest of the country. But we are celebrating, uh, some of us who are Persian, the New Year. This is Nowruz, the Persian New Year, which goes on for 13 days and started a few days ago. And it is just a fabulous holiday, which, of course, you can read all about on AmericanFoodRoots.com nice. with recipes. It's 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 not a religious holiday. It just celebrates the renewal of spring. And that's like the best kind of holiday. It's I know, like Thanksgiving. Right, right you know, exactly. No religious it overtones. It's, and all this food, they cook stuff with loads of fresh spring herbs and eggs, you know, f- renewal, fertility, all of these, all of these good things. And most cultures in the ancient Mediterranean had these big spring celebrations at the, at the uh, spring equinox. Actually, no ruse begins at the exact moment of the vernal equinox. Equinox. Is that right? Yeah, when the sun crosses the equator and winter ends in some places. <laughs> but um, this is, it's, uh, it's just a, a great holiday with really good food. And we have some really good recipes on AmericanFoodRoots.com. Excellent. So we've gotten all the good food uh, mm-hmm. out of the way here. A lot of good stuff. Yeah. Okay, so we've gotten all the, the food stories, the holidays, the pork, the brownies. What happens if some of that food falls on the floor? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, God. What do you do at your house? 
Um, well, it depends. Uh, I have a dog, and the, and the dog hovers. The dog knows when it's dinner time, he comes and he hovers. And so if it hits the floor, uh, there is no five-second rule in my house because the dog is usually eating it by five seconds. Well, they're a group of biology students, university students in England, have measured how quickly two of the most common bacteria can hop on food that's dropped on the floor. Oh, no. And they've, they've compared what happens on linoleum and what happens on carpeting. Oh, wow. Okay. This is fascinating. Because yeah. everybody knows the five-second rule. Exactly. And their findings actually support the idea that the five-second rule <laughs> kind of works. For, <laughs> but for moist snacks, such as wet pasta and sticky gummy bears. Oh, wow. Okay. What, what <laughs> they is were really focused here. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> if you're able to pick up a wet gummy bear three seconds after it hits the tiles or the laminate floor, it will pick up many fewer microbes than if you wait 30, 30 seconds. No kidding. Yep. And for carpet, you get an even longer time. Really? Yep. It didn't, And it doesn't matter whether the food is wet or dry. That's fascinating. The surface spread the least germs even over a full 30 seconds, according oh, to man. this study. Oh, no. If it's a bit on the floor for 30 seconds, I'm tossing it. Seriously. Thir- 30 seconds is a long time. You don't want to let your two boys hear this. Well, here's here's the thing. I have... Daddy, gum on the sidewalk. Yeah, right. <laughs> right, exactly. No. I, you know, I've dropped many things on the floor, and... um. I'm try- I think I'm a case-by-case basis in terms of what we do with it in the sense that, like, if I drop, you know, a little something on the floor, it's okay. We'll toss it. But if I've dropped a, the turkey a, the turkey, or an entree, right? Like, I remember one time I did a whole big pork loin on the grill, and I came in, and I, I tripped out I coming back in the back door, and it spilled off the vessel that I was carrying with, and it hit the ground. And even though it had just come off the grill, it was hot. I reached out. I picked it up. I put it back on the thing, and nobody was around. <laughs> I thought to myself, yeah, it'll be fine. Did you pick up the the dust bunnies? I looked, the... I looked to see if there that was any so embarrassing. debris or anything like that. There was no debris. Uh, and I just went ahead and searched it. It was on the ground maybe two seconds. Maybe that improved it. It might have been. And it might have been an improvement on on my cooking. All right. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you again next week. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at AMER Food Roots. Go to our website, AmericanFoodRoots.com, and follow us on Facebook. Facebook.